0: Thank you, Pastor Fox. In 1515, there was an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther who, he was a professor and he decided he's going to go through the book of Romans. He's like, I'm going to teach my class the book of Romans. And as he's going through the book of Romans, he saw a phrase there that he couldn't understand he saw a phrase there that caused a barrier for him understanding the book of Romans. I'm gonna read a, a quote. He said, nothing stood in the way, wrote Luther, but that one expression, the justice of God. Now, if you have the ESV, your text will say the righteousness of God, not the justice of God. But this phrase, the righteousness of God, appears eight times in Paul's letters but its, its first appearance in the book of Romans in, cha- in chapter 1, verse 17, this is where Luther began to concentrate on that text. He's looking at the righteousness of God in verse 17. And he's sitting there, and he's looking at this phrase in verse 17, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, and he noticed and believed that it had a connection to another statement at the very end of verse 17, which is, the just or the righteous shall live by faith." And so now, Luther has stopped trying to focus on what the meaning of righteousness of God is directly, and he's more focusing on the connection between the righteousness of God and the righteous shall live by faith. How does that work? How do those two come together? And the conclusion Luther would come to about that connection would turn the entire world upside down. The righteousness of God, what he had believed before as a Catholic is that the righteousness of God or the justice of God meant that God is right and just in punishing sinners. God is a right God to punish sinners, that's what he had seen it as, that's God's justice. But once he saw the connection, which we'll get to, he saw something that was more appropriate for the term gospel, for the term good news. He believed that the righteousness of God was the righteousness that God gives to us. It's a gift of righteousness. And God gives it to his people Which is why, it says the right shall live by faith, which is why they can have that gift of righteousness when they believe. The righteous shall live by faith. You get the gift of God, the righteousness of God when you believe. What Luther had uncovered here is what theologians often refer to as imputation. The very heart of of the gospel. What does imputation mean? What does that mean? Well, it means to consider or to count, which means that God, in this context, is considering us or counting us as righteous even though we are not righteous. We are counted as righteous even though we are not righteous. Let me give you an example. So, in Rudyard Kipling's uh, jungle book that came out centuries ago, uh, there was a, a boy named Mowgli, and he was raised by wolves and other animals. And to the other animals, he was called a cub. He was considered as an animal, even though he wasn't actually an animal. There are other examples I could use. Uh, you guys obviously understand in our current context, there's lots of people that claim to be something, have, want the status of something if based on what they feel. There was a woman recently who is a Caucasian that wanted to be referred to as an African-American. And so in all of these situations, in all these instances, we have people wanting to be something, wanting to be African American wanting to be an animal, even though ontologically speaking, they aren't. Does that make sense? They want the status of something, even though they aren't that. In an imputation, that means that we have the status, the legal status of being righteous, even though ontologically speaking, we are not righteous. We sin every day, right? And so that comes to another question, sort of answered it already, but if we are not actually righteous, but we are counted as being righteous, that means we don't receive righteousness before God based on what we do, because we can't do it, we can't be righteous. So how does that work then? How does someone receive the gift of righteousness? As Luther saw... Verse 17 in Romans, the righteous shall live by faith. By faith you are righteous. So, what we have then, it is by faith alone, faith alone, that we are counted as righteous. As Romans 4 says, as Paul said in Romans 4, we have the God who declares righteous the ungodly. God declares righteous the ungodly. In the Reformation, and and this is a very important doctrine, so in the Reformation there were two principles that caused the Reformation. There's what's called a formal cause and a material cause. Uh, To to make sense of that, you can think of a table. The table's gonna have a design. There's gonna be legs, there's gonna be a flat surface. This is the form, the structure, right? It's the foundational stuff. The material is the content. It's made of wood or whatever. So in the Reformation, the formal cause was called sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, yeah, I I don't know Latin, so. (laughs) Sola scriptura. And what that means is that Scripture is our only infallible rule of faith. It's our highest authority. It's the only thing that is infallible. And and that's in contrast to a church or a pope or anything. Scripture is the only infallible rule of authority. It's our ultimate authority. But that led to the material cause of the Reformation, which is the content. That is sola fide, justification by faith alone. And so justification by faith alone is one of the most important doctrines. And we are going to be looking at this for the next two weeks. Today we're going to look at justification by faith alone in Galatians 2. And then next week we're going to go to James, where James says explicitly, We are justified by works and not by faith alone. Pray for me as I try to reconcile those two. But no, we'll be going there next week. So we're going to be looking at this doctrine for the next two weeks. Some people downplay the importance of the doctrine of justification. Paul held this doctrine very highly. So there were some Jewish Christians in our letter uh, to Galatians specifically, there were Jewish Christians teaching Gentiles that they need to become Jewish, meaning they need to accept circumcision, they need to follow the law to be completely Christian. But Paul saw that that argument goes against the gospel of grace. Because if you have to be circumcised to follow the law and follow the law to be a Christian, then you are saying that some work or merit has to be done on our part to be accepted by God. And he condemned those who taught and believed it. We're in Galatians, go real quick to one verse nine, Galatians one verse nine. He said, As we have said before, so now I say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Anathema. So, someone's justification is the central theme. So, if you are teaching something about how we get accepted by God that is different than grace, that is different than faith alone, Paul says you're condemned. Look at Galatians 5, verse 2 to 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify to you again, to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You have severed yourself from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So for Paul, there's only two ways to receive eternal life. Either you you uh, follow the law perfectly and earn that righteousness on your own, or we'll see it's by believing in Jesus and receiving an alien righteousness by grace. You can't have both ways. If you try to mix law keeping or works with faith in Jesus to be accepted by God, Paul says you don't get Jesus. You fall away from grace. The only person that receives eternal life is the person that has no confidence in saving themselves. So this doctrine is very important. What you believe about how you're saved, according to Paul, is the difference between eternal life and being cursed. We're going to answer three questions this morning. The first question is, how does someone gain acceptance from God? And We're going to look at that from our text. We have to go quickly back a little bit to verses 11 to 14 because that immediate context plays into our passage. And I actually think 11 to 21, the entire thing is Peter, uh, Paul's confrontation with Peter. But he's describing here a situation that happened with Peter at Antioch. Look at verses 11 and 12. But when Cephas came to Antioch, this is 2, 11 to 12, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So, so what's being said here? Essentially, Peter's saying, or Paul is saying, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He's sitting down, he's eating with the Gentiles, eating you know, past the bacon, whatever. He's not following the law. And while he's eating, or you know, while he's in that area, some men come from James, to the, uh, from the Jerusalem church, and they say to Peter something, we don't know exactly what, but whatever they had said, whatever they said to Peter, Peter stopped fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Whatever they said that caused Peter to stop fellowshipping with the Gentiles. What exactly was the news that caused Peter to withdraw? There's many theories. We don't know exactly. I have one, but it's only going to distract from the main point of the sermon, so we won't get into that. But we know that the reason for the separation was due to circumcision. At the end of verse 12, again, he separated himself fearing the circumcision party. So the reason for separation had to do with the circumcision party. He's withdrawing from them because they're not circumcised. Also uh, evidence for this, the end of verse 14. It says, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. So what he's saying is, Paul called this hypocrisy a, a couple of verses earlier, and what's happening is, is Peter is not following the law, he's eating bacon, he's eating pork, he's doing all these kinds of things, but yet his actions are implying to Gentiles that you need to be circumcised. It's hypocritical because he is himself living like a Gentile, but he's forcing Gentiles to become Jews. That's the context, that's what's happening. So to, to summarize 11 and 14, to put it very simply, there's no longer fellowship between Jew and Gentile because Gentiles aren't circumcised. The Jews and Gentiles are not fellowshipping at Antioch because they're not circumcised. I'm sure we can all relate to this. I'm sure we've all had, uh, it's not a perfect, you know, one-for-one one illustration, but you know, kids won't hang out with certain kids because of a haircut or something they wear or something like that. The, the point of division is because they didn't have the circumcision uh, to get into the club, right? So they're separating because of that. How in the world does circumcision causing separation between Jew and Gentile, how does that have anything to do with the gospel? The gospel is about our relationship with God, not necessarily our relationship with one another. So circumcision is causing separation between them. So how is this, what's with the anathemas? What's with the severed from Christ? Directly, it doesn't sever someone from Christ. If this was just about Jew and Gentile fellowship, there would be no curse pronounced, if that's all this was about. But Paul, as brilliant as Paul is, he saw a much bigger issue. He saw the implication of Peter's actions. If circumcision is necessary for Jews and Gentiles to have fellowship with one another, if that's necessary for a Gentile to be accepted by a Jew, then you're saying it's necessary for a Gentile to be accepted by God. That's the bigger, bigger implication. If you're gonna say you, you need that to be hang out together, that's going to start leading to a belief that you need this to be accepted by God. And that strikes at the heart of the gospel. This is teaching righteousness and acceptance with God by something we're doing. That's what the Reformation was about. How does someone gain acceptance with God? This is what our text is about. So now we're coming to verses 15 to 21. I know that you guys have headings in your Bible, but 15 to 21 is a continuation of Paul's speech with Peter at Antioch. So Paul says, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Is he saying that Gentiles are immoral when he says Gentile sinners? I don't think so. And here's why. Paul believed Jews, he himself, were sinners, were moral sinners. But here he says, we are not Gentile sinners. So if he's going to say Gentiles are are, not, we are not Gentile sinners, uh, he is saying, he is separating himself from that in that sense. Uh, I, he believed that he was immor- uh, an immoral sinner just like the Gentiles were, so I don't think sinner here means being immoral. Essentially what he's saying is that Gentiles are strangers to God and his ways. So Jews were circumcised as babies, they possessed the law, and merely by coming into the world they had a covenant relationship with God. The Gentiles did not. Listen to Ephesians 2. Ephesians uh, well, in Ephesians 2, he does say that, that you are strangers and aliens to the covenant of promise. And so, my point with that is because he's going to go on to talk about how they are sinners, but here when he's saying we're not Gentile sinners, he's not saying that we are morally righteous and better and, and when he's denying that they aren't that, right? So, so what he's saying is that they're sinners because they are outside of God's covenant relationship. They were anyways. Paul is doing something bigger. He's setting up a trap. Have you ever had a conversation or an argument with someone where you concede a point so that they'll accept a bigger point? You concede something so that they'll accept a bigger point? Well, that's what Paul is doing here with his argument with Peter. And you can see that in the word yet in verse 16. Gentiles are ritually unclean, yet this... So he's he's admitting that Gentiles are ritually unclean because they're not circumcised, so that they will see the bigger point in verse 16, which is this even though Jews are not ritually unclean, we are both moral sinners before God, and that means we both need to be justified by God's grace. We're both moral sinners. Jew and Gentile, and we both need justification in the exact same way, by God's grace. We're on even on an even playing field. So he says here in verse 16, he says, "'Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus, And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying essentially two things. He's saying, he's making a positive statement about how we are justified, and he's making a negative statement about how we aren't justified. Right? One, we are justified by faith in Jesus. Two, we are not justified by law. So to understand exactly what's being said, we have to define what justify means. What does the word justify mean? I gotta take this coat off, it's so hot in here. (laughs) Sweating bullets. So what does the word justify mean? The word justify, it's forensic or legal language. And it's a legal de- declaration that means to declare to be in the right. How can you understand what this means? Well, think about our own court system, right? So, whenever somebody is determining guilt in our own court systems, what happens? There are witnesses, right? And the witnesses sit there, and they hear the case, and when they go back into that, to decide what's go- what happened, and when they come out back into the courtroom, and they give that verdict of not innocent— that's justifying them. That's declaring this person to be innocent of the accusation, right? That's what justifying is. And the, here's the verb justify. They have declared the defendant to be in the right, meaning he did not commit the crime. Paul is saying the same thing about us before God. God is the judge and he is going to determine whether we are innocent or guilty. And Paul so clearly here says that we are declared innocent, exonerated, declared to be in the right by faith in Jesus. How does this not compromise God's justice. How is that not a scandal? You're declared innocent even though you're guilty. We said earlier a jury is going to decide whether someone is innocent or guilty, but they do that based on whether the person is actually innocent or guilty. If a guilty man had sat there and the the jury, uh, the witnesses, the jury, had said that this person is innocent when he's not, that would be a scandal and the jury would be immoral. Yet God is declaring us innocent even though we're very guilty. How is that not a scandal? How is that not make God immoral? The answer is, because of the one in whom we have placed our faith. Because of the one in whom we have placed our faith. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve punishment. We deserve separation. Jesus stood in our place and took our wrath and our separation and our punishment for us. If a debt is paid, it is not compromised justice to let someone go free, if a debt is paid. And on the flip side, he lived a perfect life for God. Every second of his life, there was never a millisecond in his mind, in his heart, where he never loved, or he did not, or, sorry, every second of his life, he loved God and neighbor perfectly. There was never a millisecond of a bad attitude A lustful thought. So Jesus satisfies God's demand for justice. He paid the penalty that our sins deserved and he lived a perfect life that we could not. That's why Paul calls it grace. Look down at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. In other words, Being declared innocent based on what Jesus did is gracious. It's something we do not deserve. And he's saying, I'm not going to throw that away by seeking justification in myself because I will be condemned for doing that because I'm not righteous. Well, you might say, rightly, that's Jesus. That's not me. Jesus did that Not me. How can God judge me and declare me innocent based on what Jesus did? Great question. The Bible teaches that when we believe in Jesus, he unites us to Jesus, makes us one with Jesus, and so when God sees us, legally speaking, he sees his son's perfections. He does not see us. All of our sin, everything gone. When he sees us, he sees Jesus. We are one with him. Is there any place that we see that? Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And when he's saying Christ lives in me, we know from other texts, and when he says in Christ, he means Christ living in representative to me. He is my representative. In other words, the old Paul, with all his sin, with all his imperfections, with all his lust, with all his killing of Gentile and Jewish Christians, that guy doesn't exist anymore. He's dead. Legally speaking. That's so why Paul also says, and what he means when he said in Colossians, that you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. If you believe in Jesus, you don't exist in terms of legal in God's courtroom. Jesus is your representative now. And that's why we sing the hymns, Jesus is my life. That's what union with Christ means. Some people often complain and say it's unfair that we're all judged for the sin that Adam committed, that he's our representative and we are judged for the sin that Adam committed. Well, if you're gonna say that, then you have to say God is also unfair for forgiving forgiving humanity for the righteous action of one man. That's That's what Paul says in Romans 5. There are two representatives for all mankind. You are either in Adam and guilty and condemned, or you're in Christ, completely forgiven. Which one? Who are you in? Who are you in? If you trust in anything, including yourself, you're in Adam. But if you have repented and you have faith in Jesus Christ alone, then in God's courtroom, you are acquitted. You are declared to be in the right. And that means, as hard as this might be to believe, you have a perfect record. Perfect. Every lie you've ever told, every dirty thought you've ever had, everything you shouldn't have said, everything you've said today, everything you will say this week, it has all been paid for. There is no condemnation for those who are united to Jesus Christ. So that's why the gospel doesn't compromise God's justice or doesn't compromise God's justice, and it's not a scandal because Jesus satisfied God's justice. That's why Paul says in Romans, God is the just is just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's both; he's just and the justifier. This, there's a hymn that captures this perfectly, and forgive me, I cannot sing. But because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. One in himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. So the answer to our first question, how does someone gain acceptance with God simply by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone? Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, that's it. The next question, why are works incapable of declaring us righteous? Why are works incapable of saving us? Let's first understand that that's what Paul is teaching. That we won't be declared innocent by our works. Verse 16, he says it three times. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Jesus and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he says it three times. Three times. A person is not justified by works of the law. and the end of verse 16, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So what does the works of the law mean then? What does that mean? What's works of the law? Understanding what works of the law is a very technical discussion, and I'm going to spare you from that. I actually wrote a 20-page paper on that in seminary. I'm going to spare you that discussion. But essentially what it means is that it's any work that is required by the Old Testament law. Any work that is required by the Old Testament law. If you are doing a work in the Old Testament law in order to seek acceptance with God, you will not be justified. You will not, you will be found guilty. There are Catholic scholars and and priests, they they give a lot of attention to this word, works of the law. And they'll say, Paul here isn't denying that works don't justify us. He says, works of law. So the only works that Paul is condemning here are works that are done in accordance with the old covenant law. And the reason for that is because we're in a new covenant. You try to do old covenant laws, uh, it doesn't, uh, you try to do old covenant laws, you won't be justified because we're in a new covenant. It's in Jesus now. And so, when you try to say we aren't justified by works, they say that's not even what Paul's getting at. He's not condemning legalism. He's not condemning works righteousness. He's just condemning Old Covenant law. I think Paul is condemning all works. All works as the grounds for justification. He's condemning anyone that would do any kind of work, regardless if it's Old Covenant, for justification. Go to Romans 3 real quick. We're going to look at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So there's that word again, works of the law. But then go to chapter 4. Here we see Paul switch from saying works of the law to works in general. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So we see Paul is using works of the law and works in general interchangeably. And how could, anyways, how could, he's using Abraham as an example, how could Abraham be justified by the law when the law wasn't even invented yet? So I do not agree with Catholic scholars on this. But go to uh, Galatians, back to Galatians. There's a place in Galatians that teaches Paul condemns any human work to gain acceptance before God. Paul condemns any human work to gain acceptance for God. We're going to look at chapter 3, verse 10. It says, and this is the question, this is the question we're looking at when we look at this verse. Why does Paul believe that works of the law can't justify? Why, do, why does he believe it can't justify? That's the important why. Why does the law not justify? Now read. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse... For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What's he saying? Let's take this apart. He's saying everybody that relies on works of the law, they're going to be cursed. They're under a curse. Now the next line, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. In other words, if you follow the law, This last one, uh, the last one says, if you follow the law, there is no curse for you. You got to do everything in the law and you won't be cursed. Cursed is everyone who does not follow all things and do them. So the second part is saying that if you follow it, there would be no curse, right? But at the same time, Paul adds, everyone who tries to follow the law will be cursed. How does that make sense? If you don't follow the law perfectly, you're cursed. Therefore, everyone who tries to follow the law is cursed. You don't follow it perfectly, you're cursed. Therefore, everyone who tries to follow the law is cursed. This is a, I have it written out. What's being implied here is he's plying that no one can follow the law. That's what's being implied. No one can follow it perfectly. This this point one, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, meaning if you follow the law perfectly, you won't be cursed. Point two, implied point, no one can obey the law. Therefore, all who rely on the law are under the curse. And so I want you to see that because He's condemning, it's not just this passing of an old covenant to a new covenant, what he's condemning is the very principle of trying to do something for God. You cannot do something perfectly for God, therefore that's why you're under a curse. And so that would condemn all works in general. And you can see that clearly in verse 12, 3-12. The law is not of faith. It's not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The law is about doing. The new covenant is about faith, at least the law, the way that they were interpreting it. So I want you to see that. When you see works of the law, what's implied here is somebody who is trying to do it perfectly and Paul's saying no one can. No one can. That's why works do not justify us before God. It's because of human inability. And that's the point and answer to our second question. The reason works cannot justify or declare us innocent before God is because of human inability to obey them perfectly. We've had a little bit of application, but here's some closing application points. If our acceptance with God is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, that means we should be constantly thanking God for his grace. And as we're going to see next week, there is a certain Quality of faith, a kind of faith that justifies. It's not just an intellectual acknowledgement of believing in Jesus. If our acceptance, this is the next point, if our acceptance with God doesn't come by our works because we are unable to perform them then that means that you need to do deep introspection in your life to discover what it is you're trusting in. If Paul is saying that you cannot save yourself, you need to do deep introspection in your life to discover what you are trusting in. Do you think that your baptism, maybe a little bit, makes you a little bit more righteous before God? All your times of taking the Lord's supper, all the tithing that you've done, all the people you've helped, Paul says not any of that adds even a a percent to your standing before God. None of that matters when it comes to justification. None of it. We are trusting in Jesus Christ alone. He is perfect. His sacrifice is enough. The death of the Son of God is enough for you. And if Jesus is enough then that means we're constantly looking to him. He is our savior and we, be, we should be thanking him every single day that he has saved us and that we are perfect in God's sight. Let's pray. Father thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you for saving us based on nothing that we have done. Thank you for sending your son who is absolutely perfect and satisfies your perfect standards and represents us. We thank you so much, Father, we pray that this would have a practical outworking in our lives, that we would be people so set free by the gospel of grace, that we'd be free to to evangelize, we'd be free and not feel guilty to do mighty works for you. We pray that this doctrine would creep, go deep into our hearts and transform us and bear fruit in our lives and in this church. When we ask you this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.